0: Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast,
1: where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature.
0: Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Stobel and Isaac Hill. Episode 31, Bioshelters and Ecosystem Succession, with expert permaculturist Daryl Fry. Daryl is my permaculture teacher. And I was blessed to study with him at his farm, Three Sisters, Farm and Bioshelter in northwest Pennsylvania. We talk about how he grew up drinking from springs, trout fishing in in the forests of Pennsylvania, and about meeting Bill Mollison, who inspired him to start on his permaculture project, which he did 40 years ago. We talk about his bioshelter that he built, what a bioshelter is, and how it differs from a regular greenhouse. We talk about how these ecosystems that he's been a part of have changed over the last 40 years, and about succession. We speak about the wonderful plant Goldenrod, which is so powerful that it keeps fields in prairie in a holding pattern for decades by not allowing any tree seeds to germinate, all while building lots of carbon. We talk about a naturally occurring fungus that he discovered in his bio-shelter that helped him take care of thrips, aphids, and whiteflies without any pesticides. He also talks about the native forest gardens in northwestern PA that the native tribes cultivated long before the Europeans came. And he shares with us an account of these amazing forest gardens that the European settlers found on the banks of the French Creek. He also gives some tips and advice for young permaculturists and food forest gardeners. I hope you enjoy the episode. I sure did. I found it very informative and interesting, and it's always good to chat with my old friend Daryl. Now, I also would like to thank everybody who's listening to this podcast, and especially those who support us on Patreon, because that really helps. These episodes are a lot of fun to do, but they are a lot of work. And especially right now, we are really busy. So thank you, patrons. And thank you to all the folks who share these episodes with your friends. Because that really helps get this out to a broader network. I think a lot of people can benefit from these conversations. And uh, word of mouth is really always the best advertising. So thank you to those who support us. Thank you to those who share this, and thank you to those who just listen. Okay, let's get to the episode. Well, welcome, Daryl Fry, to the Plant Cunning Podcast. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Daryl is one of my permaculture mentors. Welcome to the show. Yes, thank you for having me. Of course. So, Daryl, you are a permaculturist, an educator, a uh, builder, um, an author, and you've been involved in the permaculture scene and in foraging and all of that kind of stuff for decades and decades. Um, do you, would you mind giving our listeners a little bit of background onto how you got onto the plant path?
2: Uh, sure. Um, this might be a long story, so feel free to interrupt or ask questions, but um, I grew up in small towns. I guess I grew up really close to nature, Uh, My father was born on a farm in the middle of the depression and was a child during the second world war, but his father was his one room school teacher. Um, His mother had a college degree, but I think she stayed home and ran the farm and she grew seedlings and I never met his parents. They both died when he was a teenager, but um, his brother ended up with the family farm. And so my father grew up on this farm um, he told stories about eating ramps on the way to school and the teacher sending him home. And, <laughs> That's great. And, uh, but, you know, so he, we would visit the family farm. where It was actually in the family for almost 200 years and my father's grandmother was a midwife, Lucille Batten. Um, So I had two uncles with farms in Sullivan County, Pennsylvania and we'd spend a lot of time in the summer on their farms and we'd pick wild blueberries and go hiking. And my dad liked to take us fishing and camping. And so early on in life, you know, we'd be ice fishing and I'd break off some birch bark branches and make birch bark tea over the campfire. And while we were fishing and just um, spent a lot of time in the woods and eating tea berries. And he showed us what uh, we called Indian cucumbers, a native plant with a tasty white root and yeah, that's a lovely little snack. Yeah, so we'd go trout fishing and we'd eat more Indian cucumbers and we would catch fish. But um, <laughs> when I was a teenager, we moved to the Allegheny Forest. I lived in Kane, Pennsylvania. And there again, I spent a lot of time in the woods. Um, my father would drop me off on one road and I'd fish my way downstream and drinking from the springs and and. Just looking at the plants and being in the forest, and and you know another part of my childhood. I mean, I had pretty much all my mother's relatives had gardens, a lot of gardens in the family. My father always at least had a few plants, sometimes bigger gardens. But so I came from a long history of family gardeners. And uh, when um, when I was young, I studied a lot of sciences. Uh, my dad would buy us um, this was before the age of 11 one year he'd get get us a botany kit for Christmas and we had microscopes and chemistry sets and geology sets and I just basically did all my high school science work in elementary school at home just playing and I always thought I would be a scientist and then when I was a teenager you know I was the 60s seven—it was the seventies—and the Vietnam War was still going on, and there was a lot of dissent in the world. And I just, environmental issues were becoming prominent, and I was just really aware of science was in the service of industry, and hmm. and I just really didn't want to be involved with that. So I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, suddenly, I'm eighteen, graduating high school. My parents are moving to Pittsburgh, and I met a group of friends who are really interested in the farm in Tennessee and starting a self, self-reliant self community together. And a lot of them worked at a state institution for what we called then mentally retarded people. Um, so I became a mental retardation aide at age 19. And I spent 18 years working at this state institution um, and one of the great things about working there was it was it had been a self-reliant community itself for over 60 years. Um, the state had a dairy, they raised chickens and pigs. And when I started, it was just all, they were closing down the dairy and they weren't farming anymore, but it was surrounded by forests and fields. And um, just, there was an orchard. And so I'd spend my lunch breaks hiking around the woods, learning to identify plants and you know, finding the cohoshes and the um, wild berries and just um, just getting to know the land. And, and my friends decided they weren't going to have a community together. But by then I found an old farmhouse. I moved in and I was rehabilitating it. And my neighbors were all homesteaders. They were five or 10 years older than me, but they were teaching me how to raise goats and chickens and to garden. And uh, I got together with my ex-wife Linda there and we we gardened and had our own little homestead thing going on. And somewhere along the line, I started studying, I was reading a lot of organic gardening magazines and mother earth news magazine. Hmm. And I read an interview in Mother Earth News magazine in 1980 of Bill Mollison talking about permaculture. Hmm. And as soon as I read this, I'm like, this is what I want to do. I want to be a permaculture designer. Yeah. So I sent off for the book Permaculture One. And I was, I did go to a workshop in 1982 to Stonyfield Farm, which is now the yogurt company. But the owner Samuel Kamen was just done developing his yogurt recipes and and uh, bill mollison had a three-day workshop so while sitting around eating ice cream and popcorn in front of the fireplace bill mollison had to sit by the fireplace so his tobacco smoker would go up the chimney but <laughs> I, I said how do i bring this to my area and he's like well just get a piece of land and start doing it and and um, you know practicing these ideas and getting to know your area and then I mean, what grows there and, and he's like, start a farm and start a nursery business and you know just make it happen. So I went home inspired, that's what I'm gonna do. Wow. And, uh, and then I wanted to take a permaculture design course, but I wasn't able to travel. By then I had two young children and full-time job. So I started looking around for someone to host a permaculture course which I eventually took one in 1986. I brought a teacher to Slippery Rock University. But in the meantime, I did like five years of dedicated self-study of permaculture. I read every reference I could find to permaculture one and permaculture two. I even found the book Climate Near the Ground by R. Geiger at the Environmental Center Library, just about you know how Microclimates and landform shapes the uh, microclimate, and
0: mm.
2: and you know I'd study plants in the summer, and in the winter I'd study different kinds of landscaping or um, forest tree identification. We you know made miso, made tempeh, made our own soy milk, and just um, really a focused study of learning as much as I could about permaculture, and, and uh, you know that included plants a lot yeah my method of early method of learning plants i'm more visual learner i think so i'd, I'd have plant identification books and i just spend a lot of time looking through them and then i went on my hikes through the woods and we take our goats for a walk through the forest around us i would um <clears throat> excuse me i would see plants that are interesting and think oh i saw that in the books so i would take a few leaves home and look it up and figure out what it was and just kept learning more about plants and bought John Lester's book, which was one of Bill Mollison's references and <clears throat> learned about herbal medicine and, and so forth. Wow. Just did it all. I, yeah. I guess I so. It's, a, it's on, ongoing process.
0: Yeah. Uh, always a continual lifelong learner. That, I think that's a great way to learn about plants too. That's, that's kind of how I, I do it too. Like, I look through books and then when I go out and find a plant I don't know, I'll look it up.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Along the same time period, you know, I've been listening to some of your other podcasts and one mentioned the new Alchemy Institute. Yeah. And I, you know, when in my studies of permaculture, I was still reading, you know, mother earth news magazine was just really important for bringing new information out about regeneration and sustainability but you know they had articles about the <clears throat> bio shelters at the new alchemy institute yeah the work of john todd and cody mangue and earl barnhart and all these new alchemists we joined them and got their journals and newsletters and and what really struck me was the, the importance of models yeah. and sustainability and so we came to the realization that what permaculture needed to do was create models of what we called sustainability at the time now more you know regeneration might be the better term but just models of sane living that we can demonstrate so that when people start looking for alternatives then there were you know there are models to follow yeah i think that's one of you
1: There has to be something to point to instead of just saying we have to change. It's like, okay, well, how do we change? And then you can point to these examples and these models. So that is really important to have.
0: Yeah. Now now all these years later, we can point to like your bio shelter and see how it's actually, how you actually can make one of those. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, so the story of my farm, three sisters farm and my bio shelter, I know it, I was, practicing designing farms. There was one piece of land I was interested in buying and I would, you know, did studies and was designing to do like a goat dairy integrated with market gardening. And I ended up not quite having a down payment for that property yet, but Linda and I were looking for land and we also wanted to do this market garden farm. And we eventually bought 10 acres of land, which I'd like to talk about later, which was a very diverse piece of property. Um, but there wasn't room to build a f- farm on it. Mm. And then my neighbor, Jack Schmidt had told me he had, he bought a 10 acre field and he said or, he, 10 acre property with a five acre field and five acres of woods with a stream. So he was building his house in the wooded section and he offered us his five acre field for our permaculture farm. Mm. So we put it, it had been soybeans and corn and. You know, for decades who knows it's just really damaged land there was a sparse tree line and i suggested that we just let it go fallow for a few years and then eventually we let the neighbor plant the clover hay and in the meantime i was studying and trying to scheme and i was like can you really intensively garden 2 to 5 acres can you manage that many road, you know garden beds raised beds and I didn't really see anyone doing that yet. Just reading John Jevons's books about biointensive gardening, and um, a lot of home-scale gardeners. But you know, we were also studying. At the time, there was an energy crisis. Um, the, you know, from the Carter administration to the early Reagan administration, the politics of oil, um, just you know, caused the United States to put a lot of money into energy conservation and trying to understand how to use less energy. So there was an office in the town nearby Franklin for the Pennsylvania energy office that was giving out a lot of information. Um, I heard you speak on a previous podcast about the integral urban home book yeah. that you've been reading. Yeah, that's they actually a had a, yeah. They had a film about that there. Um, wow. so I borrowed the film and watched it on, uh, uh, where I worked, we had a film projector. So I had my residents watch the film with me one night. Um, but there was, uh, so I was you know, just studying energy efficiency and greenhouse design and, and the um, and work at the new Alchemy Institute. And for various reasons, I got on the mailing list from the Pennsylvania Energy Office. And in the New Year's Eve of 1987, they send out a request for proposals for grants to show energy saving in agriculture. And as soon as I got this paper, um, this information, I knew that this was my bio shelter I was going to build. That this was the funding for it. Nice. They're offering up to seventy-five thousand dollars for projects that show the savings of energy in agriculture. So I consulted with uh, Anna Edie and Martha's Vineyard Island on her bio shelter design, and I talked to people in New Alchemy and my father let me use his calling card and I spent, I worked afternoon shifts, so I spent my mornings designing and making phone calls and budgeting and basically in 30 days I designed my bio shelter with help with some friends and colleagues and started um, putting together the budget, wrote my grant proposal and by the middle of February we had funding to build this bio shelter, it became Three Sisters Farm. Wow. Oh.
0: So, do you think you could um, define what a bio shelter is for our listeners who might not know, like how it's different than a greenhouse?
2: Uh, yeah. Um, to me, a bio shelter is a a greenhouse managed as an indoor ecosystem. So the bio shelter is more about what's inside it. Now, I also add the concept that it's passive solar, um, you know. Not using fossil fuels. Really, my goals when I planned my farm and the bio shelter, and I say I, but really, we ha- I had a team of people I was working with, including you know, Linda Strawbridge, my ex wife, and Don Shiner and Frank Hildall, um, permaculture practitioners, and my neighbor Jack. So we, we collaborated on the design, but our goals were to show that we could grow food in the winter in Pennsylvania without the use of fossil fuels, maintain a frost-free greenhouse, and also to show that you could increase the biodiversity on a piece of land while developing a farm. And so the bio-shelter we built is, the whole building is 40 feet wide and 100 feet long and has two floors. The 40 feet wide includes an eight foot storage section on the north side and a cold frames on the south. So the actual greenhouse part is 28 by 100 feet basically. Um, We modeled it after Anna Edie's Solviva BioShelter that was on Martha's Vineyard Island. And so we put a chicken coop at one end and we put a potting room at the other. We added a kitchen for processing our produce and um, And so we over the years we tended and perfected our plant culture and created an indoor ecosystem. So did you meet your goals? Yeah, I'm retired now. I don't have to do anything more. (laughs)
0: But I mean, Uh, you know, you're able seriously. (laughs) But you you were able to uh grow food uh through the winter in you know northern Pennsylvania. in in that bio shelter for years, right?
2: Yeah. You know, actually, as a, I mean, since when I was a child, I had a butterfly collection and insects. I was always trying to catch flying grasshoppers and kill these poor little critters and stick pins in them and put them on pieces of cardboard and try to figure out what they were with my little golden books, plant ID. But, um, yeah, but as an adult, I just, uh, I mean, the Rose version of the um, Backyard Naturalist always inspired me. You, know, you can just learn so much about, you can spend a lifetime in a five acre field just studying nature. I was there, I don't live at my farm now, I live in Pittsburgh, but I was there last week doing some work, pruning back some trees. And this tiny green spider came floating by on a spider web. And I was like, what's this? And I was like, I haven't seen this one before. It a, I couldn't quite see it because it was rising up as it floated by, but um it just, just just amazed me the amount of biodiversity that returned to that land every year and it just got more and more complex as we added plants and trees and the windbreaks developed. Yeah. So the outdoor ecosystem you know thrived. In my book Biochelder Market Garden a Permaculture Farm, I have a list of the I kept track of the different species of animals that visited or lived at the farm and you know kept adding to the list when I'd see things and put that in the book. But inside the bio-shelter, it was really interesting how things evolved. We built it in 1988 and 89, and we started gardening inside in 1989 and 1990. And right away we developed a a main crop of a salad mix Mm -hmm. where we were were trying to do a French mescaline had a lot of different greens and then we'd add chervil and something bitter like endive and, and, uh, every year we'd expand our gardens. So we went from like a 10,000 square foot garden south of the bio shelter. And then we put one another 10,000 square square foot garden east of the bio shelter and another square foot, 10,000 square foot garden to the west. And then eventually we had almost two acres in raised beds, but, um, I'm using a rototiller a lot to tend them, but yeah. But our salad mix <laughs> became very diverse. We started including a lot of wild edible plants, wild amaranths, oxide daisy, dandelions, purslane, violet leaves, had some watercress patches and just um, just a lot of different things. It changed through the season, so we called it salad of the season. So the bio was used mainly to grow ingredients for our salad mix and to propagate plants for our outside garden. And early on, we were getting lots of, the main pests we had were a lot of aphids, thrips and whiteflies. Um, The whiteflies came in a plant that somebody gave us or we bought and you just gotta be careful. Books always say you should quarantine plants before you introduce them to your greenhouse. And I can't recommend that enough. Um, So we had some pest problems, we were using soap sprays and we were buying ladybugs and um, releasing a few predators, um, thrip predators and spider mite predators and white fly predators. But we still had a lot of problem with the aphids. and um, I was using some sticky traps but the sticky traps would catch the predators. And um, I just didn't really like those, but um, we had surfeit fly larvae that would eat a lot of aphids, and we have gall midge larvas that lived in there 10 months of the year that ate aphids. And we still get these big outbreaks. And then one fall, cool fall day, I found these moldy aphids under a spinach leaf or under a borage leaf. They were like little aphids that had this mold growing on. And I remembered reading in the New Alchemy Institute garden books and in a SARE bulletin about people studying um, funguses that eat insects, entomophagic, I think it is. And so I sent this sample of this fungus aphid to an entomologist that I got his address through the SARE bulletin, this Northeast Sustainable Ag Research and Education Program. And six months later, he wrote back and said it was a Bavaria bassiana* fungus and it was um good for killing aphids, white flies, and thrips. No way.
1: <laughs> That's so cool. So, so you didn't introduce it. It was it's something that came up that, that like came because there was the things it liked to eat.
2: Yeah, yeah. You find wow. you, I mean it's probably in anyone's garden, but it's a cool weather fungus. Mm-hmm. Um and it, it's not in the summer, I think it's a soil organism or it goes dormant. And so I started seeing this in the fall and I would take a few of them and I put them in a little plastic deli tray and mist them with a little water and let them spore. And then I'd mix that in my little quart sprayer and go around and spray my seedlings. And I looked it up online and um, it was non-toxic to humans. They actually do sell it commercially. And at the time I told my father, this is really valuable. This is the most important thing. We should learn how to commercialize this. And he was an, he's an engineer, he was an engineer, but he, I don't know, I just didn't know how to market it or wasn't really that interested. And I really think people should just find their own versions of this mm-hmm. yeah, um, and culture it. So once we had that in our system, you know, and then we just really had no pest problems. The beneficial insects would take care of things from March and April through October. And then the fungus would become active and through the winter, you know, once in a while I'd spray it around on my seedlings. Um, but basically, you know, the we had this functioning ecosystem. I and mean, we also use a lot of pollinator plants. The, the beneficial insects like to have pollen and nectar at various stages of their life. So we kept alyssum blooming. We always had nasturtiums blooming year-round. Yeah. We had, um, I say had because right now the building's not in production. We had a collection of we saw a lot of edible flowers so we had pansies and a collection of scented geraniums and just a lot of different flowers calendulas bloom year round and snapdragons bloom year round um, alyssum is probably one of the more important plants in the greenhouse because it it blooms through the year it's very little maintenance um, and it's got really small flowers that the insects can get into and use easily
0: that's sweet sweet alyssum
2: yeah Okay, cool. Yeah, that's a really cool plant. Yeah, you know, we we just kept a lot of diversity inside the bio-shutter. We had anise hyssop, and um, in the winter we grew a lot of pineapple sage, which basically bloomed from November till springtime. Wow. So, so, you know, the main crop salad mix and edible flowers, you know, all kind of function together. And also part of the pest control is just the way you harvest and I'd always tell people when you're watering the greenhouse, you're not just mindlessly watering You look, bend up some leaves and see if there's any aphid colonies underneath them and wash them off into the soil and they'll get the fungus on them. And, um, you know, just uh, pull a few weeds while you're working in there. So, so that's kind of, you know, a long, long definition of a bio-shutter. Yeah. Indoor ecosystem.
1: So how did you keep it frost free in Pennsylvania without any fossil fuels?
2: Yeah. um, Well, you know, when we modeled our bio shelter after the new Alchemy Institute's arc and they never had to have backup heat, we had to burn firewood, but the arc bio shelter um, it's kind of built onto a hillside and it's uh, got a lot of thermal mass inside. It's, the New Alchemy Institute doesn't exist anymore, but it's a co-housing community and one of the original New Alchemists and his wife, Earl Barnhart and Hilde Maingay, turned it into a home uh, and they you know, retrofitted it a couple of times and t- built a house on it. But, but they have really a small volume of air relative to the surface area inside and our bio shelter we modeled after this Annie Edie's bio shelter and Martha's Vineyard, with some modifications. But we ended up with a lot of volume of air inside, and with a flat floor, it's not really building levels. And so we we had passive solar, we had a super well insulated, but we still needed to burn three cords of wood a year to keep it frost free. You know, now that I'm not running it year round, I keep it. I drain the pipes and I water my rosemary and my jujubes and my cactuses. And um, you know, snapdragons come up and there's things that kind of come up on their own in there but I basically don't water through the winter. Um, but you know, for 25 years while we were running it, basically anytime it was gonna be below 25 degrees outside overnight, we would build a fire in the evening and feed the fire till 10 o'clock at night. And then um, let, you a know, bank the fire for the night. And I think down, one thing about greenhouses is, you know, if it gets down to 42 degrees, 40 degrees, even 35, it doesn't really hurt the plants that we were growing. And when the temperatures, the sun comes out and it gets up to 80s, 90 degrees, again, it's not hurting the plants. So the plants can handle a lot wider range of temperatures than people like. Yeah. So, we burned three cords of wood a year. We had designed the building to store a lot of solar mass. And then we had chickens in there, and the 50 chickens give off a lot of body heat. Yeah. And then the other thing we did for heat was we had compost chambers built into the back, the north side of the bio shelter. And so, in December, January, February, we'd fill these compost chambers with tons of horse manure. I kept my tr- pickup truck at the local fairgrounds where they had stables, and then we'd bring home truckloads of manure, load it into the compost chambers, and then we had duct work to blow the heat into rock storage beneath the growing beds in the bio shelter.
1: Oh, wow. That's so um, And did you use glass or poly- polycarbonate for? Um- oh, we,
2: we used acrylic for the glazing. The building needs reglazed. Right now, I have greenhouse plastic over it. Um, whether it's acrylic or polycarbonate, after 25 years, they both crack or you know just get discolored, start to degrade, and need to be replaced. And I semi-retired from my regular gardening um, six years ago. I tried paying other people to run the farm for a while, but it just wasn't working out. So um, I currently working with a group of friends to turn it back into a central Appalachian permaculture center and, you know, budgeting for reglazing. But we, what we did was we used glass on the vertical walls Mm -hmm. and then we used polycarbonate, I mean, so pardon me, acrylic on the roof, 1800 square feet of acrylic. So why is that? Um, Well, glass overhead is, it's expensive, but, Breaks. I mean, to be honest, <laughs> we initially put glass on the roof and we had a lot of glass breaking and the Pennsylvania Energy Office, in their kindness, um, recognized us as an experiment. Um, we had had an architect advise us to use glass when I was asking them whether I should use acrylic or polycarbonate. So they gave us a second grant to take off all the glass and to put um, the acrylic glazing up.
1: That's really awesome. So So that's what you would recommend to people who are, who are starting out and looking into uh, building a bio shelter is to use some sort of acrylic or polycarbonate on the roof.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I built a few greenhouses for other people and I do a lot of consultation. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, my, I believe I still believe that that there should be a bio shelter in every neighborhood. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the best examples came from studying us is the you know, our work at Three Sisters is the Garfield Community Farm BioShelter in Garfield in Pittsburgh. And they build a probably 32 by 24 greenhouse um, bio-shelter. And, you know, they just harvested bananas this winter there. Wow. (laughs) What? um, Yeah, they're one of the farm managers. She doesn't, she thinks it's a waste of time, but the pastor that runs at John Creasy he's um gets really excited about these different plants and yeah um, and he he does some work in Mexico's mission with some Native American tribe Native Mexican tribe in the mountains and goes down and plants things and um so he likes to grow some of the plants like chaya and different edible leaves and things that that uh but they also they do a lot of great work they grow Thousands of seedlings every year, and distribute their food to the community. Especially during the pandemic, they were just growing and giving away a lot of food as part of a church project. Um, Well, I
0: I built a bio shelter. You know, after spending a summer at your bio shelter, and I found it very, very useful, especially for like overwintering plants like rosemary and greens. And then also, yeah, to use as a seed starting area, it's just, it, it's, you can't do the same thing with um, uh, like a, a a regular greenhouse, like a hoop house or something. Uh, you, you'd have to heat it. You have to heat it with um, fossil fuels, basically, in order to be able to do that. So I think it's very valuable. Um, well, another thing about your project is how you turned that corn and soybean field into this diverse uh, resilient landscape. Uh, do you think you could talk a little bit about how, um, that ecosystem has changed over the
2: last, uh, what, 40 years? Yeah, geez. I think gets to be 63 years old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Dan, when I first looked at it, it, it was literally corn stubble in the field. Um, and, there was a place where there was a small spring coming through the field. And you know, when we let it follow, there were a little bit of cattails came up and a little willow tree started coming up. So we're like, great, we can put a pond here. And the tree line still had barbed wire running through, you know, little strands of it here and there. And there was some straggling trees. There's a website called Penn Pilot in Pennsylvania where you can look at old aerial photos of Pennsylvania. And so, you, you know, I could see that In the 1930s, there was a tree line and then maybe a little brushy. And then in the 1940s, somebody cut it back, but there's trees growing again. And so there was always this tree line on the north and the east side of the farm between the fields. But um, the main things we did to increase biodiversity, um, one, we added a pond, which just really added a lot. Um, I'll talk about shortly, but then the tree line, we let like grow with a lot of native plants, silky dogwood and red twig dogwood, you know, filled in. We added things like wild viburnums, you know, the nanny berry um, for the fruit and we added some heart nut trees. And, but we just let this tree line expand naturally most of the places, Um, there was in, in the, northeast corner of the farm there was a natural drainage wet area. Um we just let that grow up as a swamp with Joe Piewe. Not really a swamp. I mean it's like 40 by 50 space.
0: Like a wet meadow.
2: Yeah. Yeah just for some reason the, the various fields drain there. And where our driveway goes under there's a pipe under the driveway at the base of the dam of the pond and there's this little ecosystem that started there. It's um been there for 35 years now, Joe pieweed, milkweed, um, jewelweed, and ironweed all just south seeded themselves. And every year the same plants come back. I just tell them neighbors on the south side, you know, the neighbors on the wooded side, don't mow along my side of the driveway. So we let these little sections of nature come back to the farm. And then when we developed our gardens, we we leave a lot of fallow areas. There's places on my farm that have been in goldenrod for 35 years now, 30 years. And the goldenrod is allelopathic. So it puts a chemical in the ground that suppresses other plants from growing. Every once in a while, a groundhog will dig a hole and then maybe you'll get a multi-floor rose trying to come up, but for the most (laughs) part, it just stays in goldenrod. And goldenrod is really and we have like six or seven species of goldenrod on this farm. Um, but they they just are really good for beneficial insects. The Queen Anne's lace also comes up a lot, and it's really good for beneficial insects. So leaving these fallow areas between the gardens, letting the tree line expand, and letting, you know, these the pond, the wetland in the pond attracts frogs and toads and a lot of snakes and um and then the, the fourth thing we did was just adding diversity to the landscape, you know, planting our apple trees and fruit trees and little sections of asparagus and just, um, you know, of semi-wild asparagus in one part and planting tansies around some of our gardens and just adding plants that we knew would attract beneficial insects. We added a little grove of black locust trees which became a camping area in the middle of the farm. Um, that uh, you know, just the black locust flowers in the spring. So just trying to have a succession of native plants and wildflowers coming up, and you know, useful plants. Um, so the more diversity we added, the more um, complex it got. In my book, I have this quote. See if I can find it to read it's from the science fiction book Dune. And, you know, science fiction nerd I am, this is in like the afterward, it's a little sidebar the author added, which is a, a planetary ecologist's notes on the planet Dune. And he says, life, all life is in the service of life. Necessary nutrients are made available to life by life in greater and greater richness as the diversity of life increases. The entire landscape comes alive filled with relationships and relationships within relationships. Frank Herbert Boone.
0: That's so
1: nice. Yeah, beautiful.
2: So the more you add diversity, the more you enrich the soil, then the the plants start metabolizing things and critters move them around and it just becomes, you know, more and more complex. Now, since we quit gardening, managing our gardens, the goldenrod has came back and filled up my garden spaces. So they're kind of in a holding pattern of fallow. Mm. So the black locust trees are invading one of my gardens a little bit, but um, we're going to use those for posts and poles. And- yeah. yeah, such
0: a va- useful tree for that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, and then um, you know just uh, and if we want to start gardening again, we just cut back the cut back the goldenrod, and then there's no trees to root out in the rest of the space. You know just mm-hmm. uh, ready to go. Yeah.
0: Cool. So, uh, do you think you could maybe also talk a little bit how you've seen the uh, other ecosystems uh, in their succession? So, like the the your ex wife Linda's house that you were you know part of making and for for the, so many years. But also, I'm interested in um, like the wild landscapes that you have been tramping through for decades. So, have you seen like patches of ramps change over these uh, decades, or other uh, species and populations?
2: Yeah. At first, I talk about various places I tend to visit, and then we look at Linda Strawbridge's land. But um, when I moved onto this farm when I was nineteen, and my neighbors were mentoring me on homesteading. I was in Mercer County, Pennsylvania, and I drive up to visit relatives and friends in the Allegheny Forest, and there's a lot of ramps up there. And of course, I don't recommend taking things out of the forest, but maybe it was on private (laughs) land, I don't know. Somewhere, I brought home, you know, some big clumps of ramps, and I planted them on this homestead. Um, I planted them in several different areas along a little seasonal stream, and then down along a year-round stream, or it's actually a spring that runs year-round, but the flow changes. But and you know, forty years later, they've spread quite a bit. I go back now and harvest my ramps there. You know, in that bit of land, we have I rented 160 acres. It was all forest. I just had remodeled the old farmhouse, and it was surrounded by a couple hundred acres of forest. But for many years, my landlord would harvest. Trees every 10 or 15 years, and I could go back there and cut firewood for free. But he did a really good job. And then when he retired or passed away, his son took over and he just clear cut and just kind of oh, savage. No. I mean, it's not clear cut, but there's no, he didn't selectively harvest. They took yeah. a lot of stuff. Um, and it still looks like a woods, but there's none of the big trees, you know. Um, yeah. But I've, you know, watched that place go for years as so I've learned how you, you know that sustainably managing, you can cut and still maintain the forest integrity. Yeah. There's a lot of wild gooseberries and wild amalanchary and juneberries and um, mm. I get morel mushrooms there and mm. ramps and different ferns. But, but yeah, so my ramp patch grew kind of slow. We started some on my neighbor's land at Three Sisters Farm, just planted a few clumps and now it's a circle, maybe. 20 feet in diameter, you know, that we can just, and wow. a lot of times harvesting ramps, we just take the leaves. Right. Leave the roots. So when I go to my neighbors there and take them from his patch, I just take the leaves. Um, I had, I sold ramps a lot to restaurants. I um, You know, my late friend, Dan Wilcox, had 80 acres of land and I would pay him a dollar a pound to get ramps out of his Creek bed. There was a boy scout, camp that would let me harvest from them and I would uh, pay them a little bit of money so between my own patches and these two places I could rotate different years between three places to sell some ramps to restaurants and just you know you go there and you see somebody else had been there before you and with a pitchfork and just dug up all kinds of cohoshes and and trilliums and and, but I'm like there with a, just a little digging fork trying to get out, you know, five or six at a time without pulling up any other plants. And so there's a lot of mindless people out there harvesting. But
1: mm-hmm.
2: anyway, I'm sorry, I diverged. Uh, no, I
1: mean, it's important. Point.
0: Yeah, like like it, there is a very fine line between foraging um, sustainably and yeah. respectfully and ethically and overdoing it it's it really is a a fine balance so it's it's i think it's really important to for that information to be out there like how do you actually do it in an ethical and sustainable way because ramps are getting over harvested all over but there also is a way to do it sustainably so it's you know it's it's difficult
2: yeah i usually go to the center of the patch and again i had permission from these various landowners but i go to the center of the patch and um you know, let the periphery spread. So there's there's more ramps in those sites now than there was 30 years ago when I started because they are spreading, but it's just sad to see the way some people harvest. Um, as far as Linda's property, you know we were looking for a place to build a house in the woods. Um, and when we bought it, it had been you know, at the time people were dividing up hundred acre farms and selling 10 acre lots. So we bought a 10 acre lot that was mostly wooded, but it had the remnants of an old orchard um, that had been pasture. And then a couple of small sections that must've been cornfields on part of the farm and the tree lines running through it. But for the 10 acres by then, most of it was wooded, um, young trees. And it's just an extremely diverse piece of property. There's a year round stream that runs, south to north across you know the corner of the property for four or five hundred feet and then there's a seasonal stream that cuts across east to west and then joins that stream on another property so there's a ravine that bisects the property two-thirds of the way back and it's fairly you know might be a 30-foot drop and then a steep hill up to the back third of the property so last fall Linda gave me permission to harvest my ginseng that I planted when I was 28 or 25. Wow. <laughs> so that I would have it when I'm 60. Luckily, I got, you know, the road I chose looked like one of the original ones I planted, but every year i take the seeds and redistribute them, you know, plant them. And so there's a nice little patch there, but and then I chop up, I wash the root and I chop it up into tiny pieces and I'll eat a piece every day or two. I usually get a couple hundred pieces out of a root um, or micro doses of ginseng. Um, When we first started developing that property, there was a lot of crab apples in what had been the old fields, um, native crab apples and hawthorns. And under each of those trees, there was a hardwood tree coming up. So I knew about nurse trees, but to see it in action was you know, really interesting. So um, yeah. be a black cherry or an oak or a maple coming up under the, the thorn trees. It's, it's a-
0: really interesting. I, we're seeing that here at this property, too, like these really old apple trees with a sugar maple, like coming up right in between its arms yeah and and then in like another 10 20 years it'll start shading it out but it's you know it's really cool
2: yeah when we bought this land in 1984 83 or 84 there was just then started there was enough of the overstory of the hardwood that we were starting to get beech trees coming up in in the land and so they're like you know the the first tree there was some stands of poplar trees along the one hillside. And underneath those, that's where the beech trees are starting to come up in the other hardwoods. So you know, just, just this succession in the forest that the crab apples came up in the drier areas and the poplar or quaking aspen trees came up in the, the wetter sections. And then the hardwoods start coming up under those. And but there's just amazing the diversity on this property. Um, you know along the stream bed, I mean there's I like to think well, in my studies, I figured out there's like four different, um, three or four different systems that came together. There's northern hardwood trees, there's southern Appalachian trees, there's from the Midwest oak-hickory Forest, and then there's a the riverine, you know, the Ohio Valley riverine system trees. There, you know, in the stream bed, there's black walnut and viburnums and yellow birch. Um, you know, we added pawpaws. There's hazelnuts and you know the old app apple varieties, or really the old orchard apple varieties down there, and um, just a lot of a lot of different plants and ground level plants. And then up on the higher slopes, we had cucumber magnolia and tulip trees and Nyssa savatica, you know, pepperidge tree and, and Nyssa, Nyssa, whatever. I'm not so good on the Latin names, but um, you know. Then there's like five different kinds of oaks and three or four different kinds of maples and just uh, amazing biodiversity on this 10 acres of land. Wow yeah that's amazing. Yeah and so Linda made the decision we've been separated 15 years but she made a decision not to log it ever you know sometimes the neighbors bring in horses and cut trees around the property but um, you know just to, to see you know there was a native woody shrubby baptista you know, growing in the back part and wild blueberries and Now those have been succeeded by more mature hardwoods. And so, and of course, fungi, There are so many different kinds of mushrooms on this land and different kinds of bull eats and the gray bull eats and the few chanterelles and all kinds of oyster mushrooms and the aspen trees and just uh, fun educational just to watch it all develop and evolve. Yeah.
1: What's your favorite mushroom if you had to pick <laughs> to eat?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm mildly allergic to chicken of the woods and oyster mushrooms, wild ones for some reason, but I still eat them, but probably chanterelles, I guess. Just mm. yeah, the, or, I have, the, the, the first time I, my,
0: Yeah. <laughs> the first time I ever harvested chanterelles was, was with you. Cool. Yeah, I was gonna
2: say Isaac knows where my secret patches are, but I forgot by now so
1: we found uh a nice little chanterelle patch up here actually and had a really great harvest and yeah they're so they're so delicious i love the texture and the golden brightness of them it's just great
2: yeah i can see a new plant at 40 miles an hour on a country road so
1: <laughs>
2: you got the eye
1: yeah it's great
2: um wild germander and all kinds of things you find if you're Drive slow enough on the country road. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: I wonder if Isaac got that from you because sometimes when we're driving, he's like, pull over. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it can be a little dangerous if he's behind the wheel.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Dr- drive by botany. Yep. Yeah.
1: It's like,
2: what's that yellow iris doing there? Is that the one? Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: Funny. I'd like,
2: if we have time, I'd like yeah. to talk briefly about food forests. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about Food Forest. So you you, you, you have a
0: bio-shelter book out, um, and that was your first book. And then you also put out this book, Food Forest
2: Handbook, with uh, Michelle Zolba, right? Uh, Yes. Yeah, Michelle and um, Juliet Oshock, two permaculture designers and teachers, um, they got a degree in sustainable systems at Slipper Rock University, and then they came to Pittsburgh and they started Doing permaculture together. They don't, they're not colleagues anymore, but Juliet works for Phipps Conservatory. But but they made an amazing food forest in Hazelwood, Pittsburgh. Um, you know, within five years, they had um, Asian pears and apples and plums and figs and elderberries and gooseberries and currants and all kinds of herbs and Jerusalem artichokes. And then the mm-hmm. city took the land away you know, no. to somebody else. But Michelle wanted to chronicle her work in a book, so we co-authored the Food Forest Handbook together. Um, But our talk about the forest in Pennsylvania reminded me, I wanted to mention this native food forest that I found a record of on French Creek north of Meadville, Pennsylvania.
0: Oh yes, please, this is so cool.
2: And uh, I actually visited there last year, I did a talk on native plants, I wanted to see this site finally. i had been putting it off for years because I was too busy, but um, you know, when the first settlers came to Western Pennsylvania, um, the Native Americans had been here obviously for 10,000 years, but there was meadows and fields along French Creek between, you know, Pittsburgh and Erie, up closer towards Erie that had never had trees, they were always, Fields or meadows, and uh, I think George Washington wrote about him, you know, on his trips north to tell the French that they had to leave. But but later studies have shown that since the ice age, basically Native Americans maintain used fire to maintain these fields and fight back the forests, you know, for their hunting grounds, um, you know, for elk and bear and turkey and but there's a book of the history of French Creek Valley called In French Creek Valley. Um, And the author quotes this description of this food forest, as I call it, that was in um, North of Meadville. Give me a second here. I open up my book so I can try to get this right. Um, I'm gonna paraphrase this a bit, but this Captain McGill Described this abundant forest garden at the convergence of Woodcock Creek and French Creek. He said, The banks of French Creek were fringed to the water's edge with evergreen trees and bushes, while ranged along the higher bank was a roll of stately pines, beautiful in their majesty as the cedars of Lebanon. And behind the pines, half a mile in extent, was a gently undulating plain which grew great old oaks with spreading tops, a rare oak that tells of centuries, a variety that now seems to be extinct. And underneath these oak trees, there grew, um, there was, it was a wondrous park without any underbrush. And so the oak trees were the master, the main tree for, you know, the, all the animals that the natives would hunt the deer, the turkey, grouse, pheasants, bear, squirrels. Um, and then beyond that, there was a, a plateau which you know, had springs flowing from the base. And then around that, there was a circle of elms of unrivaled size and beauty. Hundreds of these great trees spreading with their branches with grandeur of the great oaks they encircled. And beneath the elm trees grew hazel bushes, blackberries, raspberries, hawthorns, crab apples, and many varieties of shrubs and plants. To the north was an orchard of wild plums bearing a great variety of red and yellow fruit the ground rose and successive margins of many kinds of hardwood timber. And the, the elm trees that circled the oaks, they would, the Native Americans would use the, arc, the elm bark for their siding of their longhouses. Um, they wow. built them out of wood frames and then cover them with the elm bark. So, and then he talks about um, the alluvial stream encircling this with. Great sycamore trees with wild grapes, festooning their branches, creating arboreal recesses of rare and inviting beauty. Um, you know, so other plants that would have been in here would have been, you know, the ramps, the wild allspice, bergamots, um, you know, all the mushrooms we talked about. Yeah. The, um, and the river provided mussels, turkeys, eels, t- turtles, eels, great variety of fish. Mm. Um, so, you know, just this amazing place. What else does he say? Somewhere in here.
1: Sounds like a permaculture yeah. paradise.
2: Yeah, so it's it's really a good model of what a, a um, Eastern hardwood forest garden would be. Yeah. You know, there are just so many different medicinal plants. I mean, the forest I see around here, you know, have the, the cohoshes and wild gingers and hepaticas and yeah, just so many different things. You know, one of the things he says in the book is that obviously this place was not by accident and that whoever had planned and designed it had worked for centuries to create this. So um, just really fascinating that there's actually a record of this food forest still existing.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And it makes you wonder, you know, <laughs> how much, what other parts of this area, this land were, were like that and didn't get recorded
2: yeah yeah you know one of the things about food forests um your know, food forests or forest gardening has manifested all over the planet wherever yeah. people settled and you know, i've spent a lot of time in a virgin forest old growth forest in the allegheny national forest when i was 16 my brother and i were hired you know my father bid on a forest service job and he hired my brother and i to mulch the pathways 3 feet wide, 3 inches deep for 2,000 feet to this native old growth forest. And there's not a lot of diversity in an old growth forest. There's Hmm. Like uh, I talked about these oak trees, they didn't have a lot of undergrowth. It was mainly maintained, you know, to keep the oaks growing. Um, But the, you know, the edges where a tree falls down or along the stream bed, that's where you see more diversity coming into play yeah and so you are what native americans do in central and south america they make milpas you know they'll cut down the older trees they will burn or mulch them down to put the nutrients back in the soil and then they plant their gardens in the clearings you know, and the clearing is where you really find the more diversity the more useful plants that we like even our annual gardening you know like most of our vegetable plants want to be grown in disturbed soil. Right. You often find this debate among permaculturists about whether you should till or not, but, um, you know, it's that, it's that place where the groundhog dug the hole that the new plants can break out of the diversity. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. We were talking uh, about
0: this with uh, Dina Falcone. It's like the human is a keystone species and disturbance is one of the main tools uh, for keeping ecosystems in balance, like, and, and in some places plowing is probably not very good where, where it's like a, a tropical ecosystem with very sandy soil. It's not going to hold up as well as a more clay soil in the Northern hemisphere. You know, you can really, it's, it really depends on where you are. And, but if it's you have the human, well yeah. And mm-hmm. like the, the human element, like that's kind of what, like I see as like the, the role of a human is to manage ecosystems.
2: Yeah, in the glaciated section of North America, you know, where you're at New York, it's been managed by humans since the ice left. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, like, they're the people who lived here first were pro- were
0: planting chestnuts and and oaks and wild plums, you know, as the glaciers receded. It's like it's amazing, and it's so sad that you know our ancestors came and just. Wiped everything out. Just cut
2: cut all the trees down. Well, it was definitely genocide in the Revolutionary War. They burned the <clears throat> Iroquois villages and right. cut down the cut down their orchards along the Susquehanna River, Genesee River, to mm. to um, punish them for supporting the British. Yeah. Um, or before that for supporting the French, but um. But uh, yeah, so the you know the concept of the food forest is really. You know the idea of that forest clearing that where we really first developed horticulture you know it's the late hope tommy Hemingway says permaculture is more of horticulture than agriculture um, yeah you know, more dealing with individual you know, agriculture has to do with tending the field or horticulture is tending the plants i think is what he described yeah and uh, so you know the forest garden is you know just Trying to recreate these clearings and I'm getting this diversity that you might find on the stream bank of a forest edge or the or the clearing that you know when the tree falls down in the forest and just um, right. tending it and you know in the North America we tend to want to maintain you know the trees for a long time. You know, one section of my farm in our orchard we couldn't really how you know, forest garden takes work so. Yeah, In the farther reaches the zone threes and fours in my farm, I just planted wild asparagus and a few tansies and some comfrey around the trees and put some black currants under, which I'll go inside around the black currants. Um, but closer into the bio shelter in zone one, we tended some fairly complex, you know, food forest gardens with um, you know, lilacs, which have a useful edible flower and service berry and rose hips. Um, edible, you know, the dogwood or June berries forming a windbreak with a large crab apple, edible crab apple tree in the middle. And then we'd put a lot of different useful plants and herbs and flowers, you know, various in the shade and the sun, depending on the plant preferences around that. And you know, where we're able to tend it, maintain it regularly, we create a pretty complex system that benefits from the different shade zones of the trees yeah and
0: i was listening to a podcast um
2: recently with
0: uh, darren doherty who's a a permaculturist and key line designer from australia and he was he was saying something that made made a lot of sense to me where grass actually produces more topsoil than forest so like the best like real the, the best ecosystem for productivity is like that savannah ecosystem where you have the grass and the trees because you're getting the whole um, the whole gamut of of solar energy you know from the top of the trees to the grass but then you're also getting the whole gamut of root growth because those those uh the grass and the herbaceous plants they have fibrous roots that really build soil quickly and i didn't really realize that but you know that that's why like forest clearings are is like is such an like, that's the template for a forest garden in this area
2: yeah i'm also curious about the carbon build up in a in a goldenrod meadow yeah because every year they make those stems and then the stems fall over and decay and it just builds up through the seasons and, you know i have places on my farm that haven't been tilled since 1980 maybe five or whatever, when they planted the first um, the clover, and then we let it go fallow You know, after clover and let the goldenrods come up. And so uh, if I was inclined, I could do side-by-side studies of the carbon content in the soil from my intensive gardens, which I would presume have less and the goldenrod, which should have a lot more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really but interesting. I know some fields I've been looking at, you know, for 40 years now that still have the same amount of goldenrod in them that just don't get cut, but the trees don't come up. It just maintains that meadow. Mm. Interesting plant.
1: It is an interesting plant. It's come up a few times throughout this podcast. It's, um, yeah, it's cool. So we've... um, pretty much come to the end of our hour unfortunately it's been a wonderful chat so far but i'm wondering if you have any tips for young permaculturists and food forest folks who are just getting started things that you've learned that are big takeaways
2: um yeah you know in the permaculture designers manual bill mollison has his 10 tree theory He's like, it's better to plant 10 trees and take good care of them than 100 and lose them all. And I've found that to be true. When I was market gardening, I'd order trees. And if I ordered more than even five or six, I'd have trouble getting them in the ground. Um, I have, uh, you know, but if you just, you know, start small at your doorstep and work out, it's just, it's an old permaculture suggestion, but it's true, you know, take care of those couple little trees. I do a lot of consulting and in the past week I visited three different um, homeowners in suburban landscapes and they're trying to figure out how much gardening they can do and how much fruit they can go. You can get what I like to talk about, fruit all year. So you start with your mulberries and juneberries in the spring or in June and then cherries come on right away. And then you have raspberries and blackberries and currants and gooseberries and summer apples and fall apples and, and summer pears and fall pears. And, you know, if you're really interested, you can, I mean, I'm still drinking my cider that I froze from last year. Um, so you can make cider, you can store apples and quinces. Um, so you can design if you have enough space or the right design you can get fresh fruit daily from June just well into the winter. Um, but you really need to, again, start small, plant the few trees that you like the most, make sure you have a good plan so that as you add trees, you're not causing trouble adding other plants. And, um, you know, take good care of the ones you plant because it takes time and money to do that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. Mm -hmm. advice you know don't bite off more than you can chew also (laughs) yeah
1: that's
0: it yeah i was looking at at apple varieties i've just started grafting some and uh there are apple varieties that will keep through to the spring some of those keepers
2: you know i learned this year it's really important to harvest them at the right time i let mine get Mm -hmm. too ripe i I wanted them to get ripe for the cider yeah golden russet and northern spy of um, uh, this greening apple, main our main cider apples. But you know, a couple of years ago, I kept them right, they were still good in the refrigerator in June and July the following year the golden russets and the northern spy. But this year, wow. I had them ripen on the tree, and they just did not even keep more than a few weeks, even in the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, part of it might be they bruised when I was picking them, but but you just, um. But yeah, if you pick them at the right time and store them at the right temperature, they last right through the winter. Cool. Well, uh, would you like to let our
0: listeners know what you're working on now? And um, if, if, if they want to take a class with you or other things, <laughs> where they can uh, find, your food, find your books.
2: Yeah, I have a website. I do sell my bio, I mean, excuse me, we do sell the Food Forest Handbook through our website. Or through our Facebook page of the food Forest handbook um, and I have a website, three sisterspermaculture.com. Three sisters being the Native Americans corn beans and squash, grown as companion plants and a good model of uh, eco, ecological gardening. Um, most of my permaculture teaching, we do a course at Garfield Community Farm every summer in Pittsburgh. And last year we did a hybrid where we had classes in the morning, we limited to 12 people and everyone was able to stay, sit 10 feet apart. And and then in the afternoon, we go to our computers and do Zoom classes with our PowerPoint presentations and conversations that worked well enough. But this year we're hoping we can get back, hoping we get back to just full-time in-person classes. There I work with John Creasy and Elizabeth Lynch as a, um, teaching team. I am also treasurer of the Permaculture Institute of North America. And a cool. Long-time long time editor and publisher of permaculture design magazine, formerly permaculture activist, Peter Bain is our executive director. Um, and we do a lot. We've really been growing. We, we started about eight or nine years ago, developing the Permaculture Institute of North America, Pina.im, pina.in, And uh, But we've really had a lot of growth recently. We've had some good funders funding projects and um, you know, expanded our budget. Uh, we offer contests and um, do we have probably 80 or 100 members who have permaculture diplomas through our organization. and we don't think you have to have a diploma to do permaculture, but a lot of organizations want some kind of credentials. And so we wanted to create an organization that would create credentials that had some real value and were rooted in real permaculture principles and ethics. So um, check out pina.in to find out who's doing permaculture anywhere in the north america
1: excellent
0: cool well thank you for being on the show daryl yeah thank sure, you it was,
1: really, it was really fun chatting with you
0: yes
2: thank you all
1: right ciao